0: Well hey y'all, welcome to another episode of Every Mom Meets a Friend. I wanted to intro today's episode with, gosh, a quick thank you for the love that I've gotten from last episode. And also, I just wanted to give a disclaimer for y'all to buckle up for today's episode. This was a requested episode from a friend in New Hampshire, and it just couldn't have come at a better time. I go into this later about how Christopher and I have been walking through some really tough questions. And it just reminds me that we all have different personalities and that I am in awe of how creative God is when he knits us together in our mother's womb, you know, with special DNA, with a whole story ahead, with quirks and personality traits, with cravings and specific gifts and different convictions. But this whole concept sometimes trips me up because sometimes it feels like with such freedom and differences comes a lot of uncertainty and chaos and separation. So... Okay. (laughs) Well, this is only the tip of the iceberg for today. So what I do with this episode is I dive into a book that Christopher and I recently finished and give my synopsis of what is good about it, what's left me with more doubt, and then just y'all wait for the kicker at the end where I make just about any of you feel super uncomfortable with the realities of heaven and hell. But before I release you, I wanted to say that this episode is really heavy and just the nature of the topic can be tough to talk about. So, just for some backstory, I recorded this whole episode and sent it to my sister in law bestie MJ and asked her to pick it apart. And in the best way, she kind of did. And she just really wanted to make sure that the message wasn't going to be missed by, honestly, my little bit of scatterbrainedness that I speak through in this episode. And usually I thrive on episodes where I just press record and start talking. But for today's episode, I think it'd be helpful for you to get a framework ahead so that you know what you're about to listen to. So in this episode, I break down some big questions, and I want to say I do not answer these questions. So from point to point, I don't do this nice bow and pause and indent before I move on to to the next point so be aware of that And this episode isn't meant to really teach, but really to spur on your own questions and your own pursuit of God, even amongst your own doubt. So the overarching theme of this episode is me breaking down the concept of doubting well, or you could say doubting without losing your faith. Basically pulling at the idea that you can appropriately ask questions, may never find resolve, and still believe in God. And many don't do this. They instead doubt, struggle, and walk away. And that's what I don't wanna do, and that's what I don't Don't want you to do, but inversely, I don't want you to be stagnant in your faith, and I don't want you to be fearful of unanswered questions. And the questions I tackle in the bulk and the stream of conscious part of this episode that you're about to hear is why do bad things happen to good people, or better said, why is suffering a necessary part of sanctification? And then I quickly go into this long segment about what I don't get about God's nature and could it be possible that God really doesn't care if you like him and why it's dangerous to humanize God because God is not human and he's above and outside any personality trait that you could try to put on him. And then I take you back to 90s church culture that at least in the Bible Belt South emphasized purity as the most important thing and why if you or others are not bearing the fruit of the spirit that you should not surround yourself around those types of people which has led to lots of hypocrisy in the church. And then inversely, I feel like we are now in a culture where every truth is accepted and division is running rampant in the world. And sometimes the church just looks no different than the world. And that's utterly confusing. And then at the very end of the episode, I take this step back from the book and reveal to you my big questions that ache my soul and the ones that I spend a lot of time suppressing, you could say, because in all honesty, I don't know what to do with things I can't answer. So buckle up, like I've said, hang tight, like I've said. I ask you to give me grace as I speak through these difficult things that I'm working out kind of stream of conscious on you. So, okay. Here we go. Okay, so I am going to talk through this book that was recommended to me by a friend of mine. Rachel, love you so much. Thank you for encouraging me to read this book. I read it with Christopher over the course of Goodness gracious, probably five months. (laughs) Christopher and I, as maybe y'all know, we get together every morning after he works out, after I work out, and we have about, let's say, 20, 30 minutes where we sip coffee and we usually read from something very typically devotional based and hoping that it kind of brings upon a discussion because. Christopher and I, as I think many married couples do, tend to spend a lot of our communication time kind of organizing, housekeeping, planning. And of course, we find fun in there. We get to do fun things. We get to go on vacations. We get to do all the sweet things that come with marriage. But there's this intellectual component that specifically Christopher and I love to pull out in our marriage. And without intentionality behind that, I felt like we just were losing that in our marriage. And so we made sure to have this dedicated time in the morning. And another funny thing is pretty much since Christopher and I started dating, I have been reading books out loud to him. I read him full series while we we're driving back and forth from Birmingham to Louisville in college. And I feel like I can totally take pride in the fact that Christopher gets through one to two audiobooks a month on his commute to and from work because he just loves people reading to him. We joke all the time that he has such a cool job, but like, are we sure he even knows how to read? Because I read everything to him Now, inversely, I love reading out loud. I feel like it helps me stay focused. It helps me understand what I'm doing. And in fact, when I read by myself, I find myself sometimes mouthing the words because I feel like it helps me stay focused. So to bring you to where we kind of were this spring is Christopher and I were going through this time of just asking a lot of questions about our faith. And we really were searching for a good book that would kind of pull on this pretty much, I hate to say it, past the Bible, because we were encouraged, and we will do this, to kind of just take our time and slowly read through the Bible, and they always say a year, but it will take me and Christopher way longer. We tend to like to read shorter segments, but then spend time discussing what we just heard, and we just felt like we were in this, I don't want to say like crisis of faith time, but we just had a lot of questions, and we felt like we both grew up in church going to, I went to a Southern Baptist church. He went to a non-denominational big Christian church in Louisville, Kentucky. And we felt like we had this foundation, you could say, of all these biblical stories and concepts and things. But these really hard questions didn't feel like they were ever really answered from the pulpit. And when I say hard, I mean like there were just these felt like monumental, foundational truths, questions, thoughts that I didn't feel like we were talking about at church in mom's groups among friends. And I know it felt depressing, but there was like, gosh, a couple months where anytime anybody would visit us or anytime that we sat down to dinner with another couple, I would start rattling off these tough, big, existential questions. And I could feel Christopher just being like, gosh, Anna, can we just have like a normal meal? But I just felt like it was so important. And we weren't talking about these things. And I didn't know the answers. And this was what my whole faith was based upon. So in a sense, you could say I was having a faith crisis. And what I will say is after reading through this very specific book, which is called After Doubt, It's written by a guy named AJ Swoboda, um, which always makes me giggle because my best friend my whole life, her last name was Swoboda. I've never heard that name before. Um, She's now married, so that's not her last name anymore, but... It is a, I believe a Czech name, Czechoslovakia, but I digress. A.J. Swoboda, which come to find out, I mean, after halfway through the book, we realized, oh, he's a pastor in the Pacific Northwest, which is where Christopher and I currently live. That's not really pertinent to the point, except for the fact that I feel like out here in Seattle, specifically in the Pacific Northwest, I guess... It doesn't feel like there is this traditional Bible Belt culture that I grew up in. There's good and bad to that, I have to say. But this book was really good about some specific things. It's not like I walked away and went, huh, I now feel like everything has been answered and I'm feeling really good. So what I wanted to do today is kind of just talk through some of the findings I found in that book. And I honestly, I was trying to think back to like English class in high school of like, am I plagiarizing? I would love to read certain excerpts from the book. It is an amazing book um, just to kind of really make you think. And it's not, I would say, an easy read in the sense that Christopher and I truly took like five months to read through it. But I would definitely recommend it because it really does help spur on those conversations that, I mean, gosh, have to be had have to. And before I jump into my findings in the book, I will say I read an additional book called Erasing Hell by Matt Chandler, one of my favorite pastors in the entire world. Christopher and I read that out loud earlier this year before this book, and it honestly created more questions and more doubt in a good way in the sense that I felt like I was sleeping. I felt like that very scary picture that I feel like the Bible talks about where Sometimes Satan wants you to just be lukewarm, and that's how I felt like going into that book, where there were these huge questions that I was quick to dismiss because they just made me uncomfortable and I really didn't know the answer. So with the combination of that book, Erasing Hell by Matt Chandler, and then this book, After Doubt by AJ Swoboda, I felt like Christopher and I are, I don't want to say back at square one, but we at least have created this balance of like, okay, there's a lot of questions we don't know the answers to and I'm a little more at peace with that. Don't want to say I'm at full peace with that just to make it clear. But for today, I want to talk through some of these like crazy findings I feel like in this book that just helped me kind of articulate some of the questions that I had. And I have to say, as you know, in Every Mommy's a Friend protocol, we always do a big question to start, but I'm actually going to end with my big questions because these big questions are like questions that I'm not going to answer questions that I'm not sure you're going to be able to answer. These are the questions that I want to end with because they are the questions I still have and I don't really get, obviously pertaining to faith. So this book, After Doubt, it talks about basically everybody goes through three different cycles in their life. They have this construction of faith, this deconstruction of faith and reconstruction of faith. And that might happen multiple times in your life for perpetuity until you die, I guess. And that really the Christian spirituality isn't solely about one's capacity to restate right, true, and accurate beliefs. It's just really about total trust, submission, and faith with your whole body and just wanting to grow closer to Jesus. And I struggle with this because Christopher and I, I don't want to say we're such intellects, but we we want to know the answers. We don't feel comfortable with unanswered questions. And so wanting to grow closer to Jesus being the purpose and not knowing the answers being the purpose makes us stumble a little bit. And it really brought upon the question of How can you doubt with intention and fully grow closer to Christ? And that doubt isn't the issue. And really, I was struggling with the fact that this, if you want to call it crisis of faith, was this just me projecting onto God my struggles rather than naming maybe what my sinfulness or what I was going through, my unfaithfulness. What I was doing was I feel like I was turning back around and saying, God, you're unfaithful. But I have to say that my mind was blown when he talked in this one chapter about question, Does God care that we really like him? And it's this whole idea that I think about, did God call us to Seattle or did we just trust whatever we decided to do, he would be there? So there's this like human aspect that I continually push on God. I continually go, God is love and love in the sense of what I think love is. God is a fair judge fair in the sense of what I think fair is. And God is the ultimate healer, but you know, God heals sin and that doesn't mean he heals the pain. I mean, I I hate to say it. It's the most cliche question about why do bad things happen to good people? I think about when there was a woman in my life who passed away. Super amazing woman, loved the Lord, took care of her body and she died of cancer. And it's why did she have to die when there are plenty of people that are like murderers and rapists and they are still living on when all of these people that are so full of love and grace and are like better for the world, why do they pass away? And the author talks about this concept I think multiple times because I think I have it in my notes like multiple times, but that heaven is a place that Jesus wipes away all tears. And this implies that we will be crying before or as we enter heaven. And I have plenty of friends who have walked with me through really tough times, and they've talked about that there are pockets of hell and pockets of heaven on earth, and we should seek to find those pockets of heaven and surround ourselves with people who wipe away our tears because there's a lot of tears on this earth. But I also think it's interesting to think about the concept of heaven being a place where Jesus wipes away all tears because it's just fully giving reality to the fact that there is a lot of toughness in this world. And so, okay, then I think about why do I have to sit here with all these questions? Why couldn't they get answered? Like, let's just go down that road for a second. Like, why couldn't God just answer them? And why do I have to be uncomfortable. I know it's silly to say, but but why do we have to go through the torment to ultimately become closer to God? Isn't there other ways to do it? And the author in the book cites A lot, a lot of other authors, and he cites a lot of anecdotes. And sometimes I'm like, if we could just take out all of those extra things, this could be a lot shorter of a book. But some of the anecdotes are really helpful. I remember one, he talked about that there was this specific type of bird that places rocks in the nest. And as she places these rocks one by one, that will make the babies in the nest uncomfortable. But ultimately, it's that if they stayed in that nest forever, they wouldn't learn how to fly. So he talks about that there are built-in obstacles in creation that encourages maturity, which I'm like, okay, that sounds really nice. I kind of get it. doesn't really answer my question, but a cool analogy. And I just mentioned that Christopher and I like to work through questions. So I hope, and I'm searching for the idea that what if our knowledge of self was a way to get closer to God, meaning that if we're made in the image of God, a knowledge of ourself, what makes us tick, who we are, our sin, our struggles, whatever, is really a way to get closer to God. And we have this element of projection. He talks about it, that if we live lives as holy, loving, and righteous, that we will actually see God as that. But conversely, if we live selfish, devious lives, we'll see God as selfish and devious that kind of makes sense. And part of knowing God and seeing God is seeing ourselves as God's handiwork. And okay, I get that. I get that concept. I feel like that's a very common from the pulpit conversation. But I feel like then in the book, it starts to get into the concepts that maybe aren't spoken from the pulpit as much. For instance, he talks about, okay, so if we believe that God existed before us and God will continue to exist after us, basically, God is God, despite our beliefs about him. The question is, when did we start thinking of our opinions of him on today, our current day, that they actually matter? (laughs) And I giggle because he talks about that we will not be judged on whether we liked the truth. We will just be judged if we followed him, which isn't as fun to say, I would say from the pulpit, a pastor can't be like, hey, you know, God doesn't really care if you like him. End of sermon. Okay, see you next Sunday. And I've heard pastors talk about this, but in reality, I don't know how much it's actually truthfully pushed is that the reality of the church is it's not always fun and comfortable. Even the idea of how we talk about the church, it probably needs to change. Where Christopher and I, you know, we've traveled, we've moved a lot and There's this constant idea of getting plugged into a church. You know, Christopher and I loathe the idea of church shopping. It's horrible. Church shopping is the worst. You become the most judgy. You're like judging the coffee in the foyer and you're judging the worship and what songs they pick. And then you're judging what the pastor's wearing and his person. I mean, it's horrible. Church shopping is the worst. But the idea of how we like, Oh, we got to plug in or we plugged into church, which is great. It's like we're a battery, and we should walk away from every church encounter fully charged because we were just plugged in. We're finally plugged in. i I just hate it. I hate that analogy. and I just I don't want to get into this and another thing and another thing, but. The reality of the fact is that a lot of the churches I've gone to in my life, not all of them, but a lot of the churches I've gone to have been these big box churches, and there's a lot of things that are very comfortable about them. They have the music that I like. They have the feeling that I like. They have the content that I like. They have the resources that I like. And honestly, I feel like they have the people there that make me feel comfortable and all these different places that I've gone, I just am like a magnet to the same type of church. And I have to believe that it is something in me that I just want to walk away from every church encounter comfortable. And I hate being patient. I hate working hard for this big goal of trusting in God. And that's just the truth of it. But... In the book, he talks about how although we are impatient, God is not. And he talks about the story where Jesus was informed that his friend Lazarus was going to die and that he was in pretty bad shape and that, you know, Jesus needed to go heal him. And everybody had their like panties in a twist because... Jesus just took his sweet time getting to go see Lazarus and ultimately Lazarus died. And I think it was like days later that Jesus showed up. But if you've read the story, you know that even though he showed up those days later, the story ends with Jesus resurrecting him. This is so telling of God's nature. And as a side, we should be aching to learn more of God's nature and having that be the pinnacle of what we are searching for then these huge answers to our very big questions. But in, in relation to this story, could it be that God doesn't seem shackled by the priorities and demands of our timetable? And I struggle with that. It really bothers me. But I hope that this bother will hopefully turn into holy refinement. That'd make it all worth it. But even me, as a parent, can understand withholding information until my child is ready. He talks about this example that when, let's say, Ellie, who's four, asks about my and Christopher's marriage, I don't immediately go, okay, here's the time. I'm gonna jump into how SEX works and it's an important part of marriage and yada, yada, yada. And that doesn't mean that I won't ever talk to her about it, I definitely will. It's just that there's an element of timeliness that I can see and she can't. We wouldn't say that I'm being unloving by not telling Ellie about SEX when she's four years old asking about me and her daddy's marriage. But on the other hand, we're quick to judge. I'm quick to judge. I'm no different than Anybody else in the world. And I have to say, I feel like this is something that came about very early in my childhood, especially being raised in a Southern Baptist church in the 90s. <laughs> if you know, you know, but one of the biggest women's Bible studies, basically from the pulpit, what was commonly taught was about the fruits of the Spirit, which is great. I mean, at VBS, I can still probably sing the fruit of the Spirit song. And I remember being taught in youth group about recognizing tangible fruits of the Spirit in others and how basically you should surround yourself with those that are bearing fruit and i mean not all bad i mean it's good in a sense of keeping me out of like quote unquote the bad crowd but really, really bad, really, really fundamentally bad in the sense that it perpetuated this holier than thou hypocritical Christian persona that I think is the reason a lot of people walk away from the church or never actually go to church in the first place. And so in the book, he talks about practicing being wrong because guess what? (laughs) You are. You're sometimes wrong and you do mess up and Being able to come to terms with that and find Jesus in that rubble is really what it's all about. And he goes on to press that, like, if this is so important, that if being wrong was actually an important part of following Jesus, that this could be the very notion and the sign of being humbled and therefore an indication of the Spirit's work within you, within you. So, Here I am sitting here, a post-90s baby. What should I do? Should I completely give up the idea of judgment or judging anything or anyone? I've been taught that the spirit gives you the ability to discern so we can know what we can trust and what we can't trust. And I have come to know, especially if you're a mom, you know that Google, if if it's your ultimate discerner, you'll find whatever you want to find. If you want to find why cry it out method is great, you'll find a lot of people, a lot of smart people talking about that. If you want to Find basis for why you should never do cry it out. You will find plenty of data for that. I mean, I think he even talks about in the book that there is a troubling amount of people with PhDs right now, living right now, that still deny that the Holocaust happened. Y'all, what? Basically, in this day and age, we can find anyone with credentials lobbying for anything we want to believe. Let that sink in. Whatever you want to believe, you can believe it. And you can find a lot of reasoning why what you believe is right. So I'm kind of like, S-H-I-T, what do I do? Because I have this quest to find the answers to these questions. Christopher and I want to work through these big questions because ultimately we do wanna be closer to God. We wanna be able to be good counselors for our kids as they come to us with these big questions. But I'm like, what am I supposed to believe? So one thing that Christopher and I go back to a lot, like a lot. And it helps us at the end of a funny morning where we kind of get on our soapbox and we start challenging each other. And why are you saying that? Why do you think that? You're saying that because someone told you to say that. You're saying that because you're uncomfortable with what the opposite could be. But Christopher was the first person to do this. And now I feel like I quote it back to him all the time. But we start with, do we think this is all a mistake? Do we think this is all by happenstance? No, we very easily believe that there is a God that is bigger than us and outside the bounds of us. I mean, even with the recent like Hubble picture of how the universe looks and how many galaxies and how big and vast it is, you just have this aching inside your soul that you know it's too big to be just a happenstance. And that's what I believe. And so when we start looking at it that big and we think about how small Earth is, Christopher and I talk about that. It's almost like in my tiny little Seattle home, in my tiny little backyard, I have little ant piles. And in these ant piles are ants. And those ants are dumb, but they're smart in some ways. And they actually learn some things. But compared to me sitting up in my kitchen, looking down on the little ant piles, They look really dumb and I'm way more refined and I can totally see a bigger picture and I can see past the fence. And my days aren't confined by walking to and from the ant pile to whatever I'm doing that day. And how would you see best fit for me to explain to those ants who've lived their whole life in that ant pile in my backyard that there's this other place called Kentucky. And they have a derby where horses, the first Saturday of every May, every year, except for COVID year, these horses, they go around a track and it's the most exciting two minutes in sports. I mean, these ants would be bamboozled. They would have no idea what I was even talking about because they lived their whole life in that ant pile right there. Now, part of me wants to completely scrap this and post-editing because it's like, why would I equate the Kentucky Derby with heaven and me, God, and these ant piles us? But hopefully you followed that analogy. Again, pa- calling the kettle black because I said this book is chock full of analogies and they kind of got overused, but then I'm sitting here giving you analogies to help you understand where my brain's at. But so I wanna bring us back to square one. What are the core beliefs that I can settle with and I can feel good about for lack of a better term? So, okay. I have evidence in my life for this. I can say this truthfully that in my life I have seen there is a force that wants to divide me. The Bible talks about this as Satan, as sin. Any separation from God, that's not good. So if Satan wants to divide us, what if we took the inverse of that? So God would want us to be unified. So it makes me think at a basic level, honestly, how we are treating each other as Americans right now is not what heaven's going to look like. Praise the Lord. But when it comes to beliefs, we have so much division, even in the church. So what are we supposed to do? Again, what am I supposed to do? Am I going to Google this? Because I'm definitely going to find whatever I want. And Christopher and I loved this point the author spoke about in this book where he talks about that there are three different levels. There is some beliefs that we are to die for. There's some beliefs that we are to divide over and some to be debated. So die for, next level, divide over, next level, debated. And I pulled the book out because I actually wanted to read one specific paragraph from the book. So page 149 in the book, After Doubt by A.J. Swoboda. (laughs) Okay. So it says, identifying and knowing what is and isn't orthodoxy might actually bring healing to the church. Diversity is a possibility only if there is an agreed upon unifying set of common beliefs. In jazz, there are baseline components of a song, chord structure, tempo, and rhythmic movement. When the bass line is played and honored, each instrument is freed to improvise or riff. This duo tandem is what makes jazz incredible, the dance of the structure and the riff coalescing into beauty. Of course, if someone goes off on a solo that goes way outside the bounds of the bass line, the song fails. That would be two songs being played. In Christian formation, diversity is only possible as long as there is unity in the bass line. We cannot lovingly disagree if we have nothing to agree on. So that and many other excerpts can be taken from the book. I encourage you to read it, but I struggle with that. So I'm like, okay, I agree with that. That's cool. That's cool. I can, I love the analogy. That makes sense. Jazz is super awesome. I totally understand that concept, but then, okay, reality strikes of like, what does this mean for me? And I think the only resolve he kind of gives to this is saying that both sides of the kingdom are part of God's work on the planet. But what about the things to divide or discuss if we're talking about those three levels? I kind of wanted to end today's discussion before I get into my big questions that really none of us can answer is I like how this author, although a pastor in the Pacific Northwest, really did a great job of not revealing, like, did he vote for Trump or did he vote for Biden? And I appreciate that because honestly, politics has become so many people's religion that I was just not going to love a book that was full of like, this is the progressive thought, this is the conservative thought, pick your lane, one's right, one's wrong. But in reality, this is what's going on with us right now, especially in America. And I know that y'all feel this tension. I know you do. I certainly do. And I don't know what to do with it. And by the way, I'm not going to speak to what is right and wrong here because, A, that's not what this podcast is about. This is a feel good, every mom needs a friend podcast that talks about that a lot of moms are very lonely and this is just a little bite-sized part of your day to kind of make you feel filled up. But these questions, I thought, were really good in a sense that it shows how divided we are, but it shows how dang confusing it is. So let me just read from it. Page 154, if you're following along. The New Testament's vision of God's kingdom is God's kingdom, not ours. But it puts so many in the position of having to choose between conservatives who live on one side of the kingdom and progressives who live on the other. We can all feel these tensions. Do we go to progressive churches that stand up for immigrant children at the border? Or do we go to conservative churches that stand up for the unborn? Do we go to conservative churches that evangelize with the gospel? Or do we go to progressive churches that seem to be living the gospel? Do we go to conservative churches that hold up a high view of sexual holiness? Or do we go to progressive churches that make space for sexual minorities? Do we go to conservative churches that tackle the evils of personal sin? Or do we go to progressive churches that fight against systemic evil and injustice? Do we go to conservative churches that emphasize human economy? Or progressive churches that emphasize climate and ecology? gosh, I don't know. And I honestly thought, where do I go? What do I do? Am I intentional about that as I enter into these different churches? I mean, Christopher and I, being in our fifth city, we've been to a lot of churches together. And I feel like now I just want to march up to the pastor and be like, hey, I have a list of questions. What do you think? Because what do I think? And what do we think as a church? And what are we going to do about it? And I hope that you giggle with me in, in the sense that at 6.30 in the morning, pacific standard time christopher and i are sitting and debating these huge things over a cup of pretty good coffee because christopher is very very intentional about buying really good beans and having a really good grinder which if you know is the key to having a good cup of coffee but so at this point i have to leave you with some big questions and these are the big questions that i don't know the answer to i'd love to know your answers i would love for someone to give me the answers to these so our big questions for today are one two three what if God created marriage to make us more holy than happy? Ugh. <laughs> okay. And then two more questions. And these, I would say, are the biggest ones that I struggle with. First one is, can God get surprised? And I know you want to quickly say, no, absolutely not. And I, and I agree with you. I completely agree. But if God isn't surprised, did God think of hell? Did God create hell? Did God know that Satan would be a fallen angel? Very confusing. Sorry, I hate to even say that out loud. I feel icky saying it into a mic, but I struggle with it. I don't get it. And then, my very last question How can, let's say, a teenage kid who follows his or her parents into other faiths go to hell? Ah, I struggle with that one. I really don't know what to do with it. And if I'm being honest, I spend a lot of time not thinking about it because it really makes me stumble. But okay. There you go. Here's what God has taught me through this book. (laughs) Okay. Wow, wow, wow. Cliffhanger. What a way to end an episode. But doesn't this feel like the ultimate cliffhanger? Because these questions will not be answered on this side of glory. And I feel like that is such a tough part of following Jesus, is the idea of just not knowing the answers, but still being obedient. And you could say continual repentance and Communion with him. And I just have to share that as I was editing this, I felt super anxious the whole time. And I felt like the Holy Spirit was working up something in me, and I just have to ask that this brings holy refinement. And I'll say, here's what I know to be true that you and I are supremely loved by God in a way that we don't deserve and honestly can't return. You're individually made. And you have purpose, and you're important, and even the smallest of baby steps towards looking more like Jesus delights God. And I want to leave you with my favorite Bible verse of my whole life. It will be forever my life verse. It's from Lamentations three twenty two to 23, and it says, Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. And with that, love y'all. Thanks for listening today and look forward to talking to you next week. I promise it won't be as heavy of a topic, but y'all let me know what you thought of today's talk and if it spurred any questions of your own. (laughs) Okay, love y'all.